Vashti Hardy was a primary school teacher for several years and she has a special interest in children's writing, especially free writing, the use of journals and creating fantasy worlds. She left teaching to focus more on her writing and is now also an alumni member and writing buddy of the Golden Egg Academy, a team of publishing and creative writing professionals who provide advice, inspiration and networking opportunities to talented writers for children. Her latest book, Dark Whispers, is a magical fantasy adventure and the second in the Brightstorm series. Vashti talked to Nikki Gamble about her work and the exciting exploits in her new book. For our listeners, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about Brightstorm, although I think mm. many of them will know it already, yeah. and then where we're going with the second book. Okay, so the world the world of Brightstorm imagines um, a world a little bit like Earth, but different as well. So if you imagine somewhere that feels a little bit Victorian, but technology has gone in a slightly different way and rather than the explorers exploring in sea ships they explore in sky ships and there are lots of places in their world that haven't been discovered yet mm. so the explorers are the celebrities i suppose of their of their environment of their world and you have explorer families that kind of stick together and stand for different values and in the world of Brightstorm, it starts with Arthur and Maudie Brightstorm, who are twins, and they sadly find out they've lost their dad, who's an explorer, and he's accused of stealing fuel from a rival skyship. So they're left in a sad situation, but also no one believes um, them when they say that their father wouldn't have done that. So they decide to take it upon themselves to break down the barriers and to follow in his footsteps and find out the truth. So they head south to um, somewhere that feels a little bit like Antarctica um, in that world, the frozen south, to try and find the clues and unlock the mystery of what really happened down there and also to try and be the, the first to reach the South Polaris of their world. Yeah. And then that's sort of the Brightstorm story, that's the arc of that. Then Dark Whispers picks up on a, a new expedition where... At the end of Brightstorm, you find out... This isn't really a big spoiler or anything, but you find out there's an explorer that's... An eminent explorer in that world, Hermitage Rigglesworth, has gone missing in the east somewhere. So the Brightstorm crew and other explorers decide to go and have a look in the east for... Uh, see if they can find where he's gone, what he was up to, what's out there. So there's a lot, a lot of mysterious questions mm. and surprises yes. <laughs> in it. And there won't be any big spoilers in this podcast, but we will explore the story mm. a little bit too. Um, I wonder if we could just start with the reading of the beginning, just to give a flavour. Yes, I'd love to. Above an endless ocean, in a place where thoughts faded like the setting sun... There was a far-reaching mist as grey as death's shadow. In the depths below, no fish swam or whales vented and the seabed remained desolate and hushed as a lost memory. The immense cloud folded and billowed soundlessly and within the inky gloom on a craggy island, something waited. They knew that the flash and snarl of Skyburn was coming they could feel it in the prickle of their leathery skin and every cell of their body could sense the electrical charge building. The darkness was broken by a radiant blaze and in the blink of an eye, they took flight. Before we get on to thinking about plot and story mm. and those sorts of things, one of the things that 
really strikes you when you read your books is this wonderful, imaginative world building. Take, for example, the moment where the sky ships take off and the twins' house Mm. turns into a a, a sky ship. How important is it to you when you're building a world like this that you can visualise exactly how something is working? Uh, incredibly for me because as a child I had, you know, I think a lot of children have this very visual imag- imagination. So if a story was being read, it's a bit like a film in my imagination. I often ask this in school visits and most children are kind of not along very uh, in agreement with, with that. Um, so for me making it real to me as an as a writer is important because if I read um, a fantasy book and I don't feel transported or I can feel the edges of that world I feel it's great if I don't feel invested in that it's real it loses me and I want to be transported in the way that when you read something like um, the Narnia books, mm. you know we're all tempted, aren't we, to push the back of the wardrobe occasionally just to see if one day maybe we'll get through because it feels so real. If we read Harry Potter, we feel like Hogwarts. You know, there's no doubt in any of our, our minds that Hogwarts does exist somewhere, and that for me is very important to feel when you're in the pages of that book, you're there. So I want my readers to feel they're with Arthur and Maudie, they're part of the crew, they're having this experience from the inside out rather than being an observer looking down um, because then you get to take them on that true ride of emotions and experience that you get through reading mm. reading a book. So for me, building that is vital. So take that, that one instance of this wonderful image of the house taking yeah. off and how you... Uh, go through the stages of describing that. Is that something that develops exclusively inside your head? Or do you actually have to draw it out and make it real Mm. in that sense? I do a variety of things. So one of the things I do, probably not not on a scene basis, but on a a world basis, is I draw a map Mm. first and foremost. Even often before I've written any words, I start to work out what the world is like and it helps me build the edges think about the history think about what the feel is the climate and all these little details the technology the problems that are going to happen on on the way so i maps is important and um, they're important to me pictures i use an awful lot so pinterest is brilliant for me as an author i have a thousand boards i have a board for each project that i work on Actually, the Brightstorm one is open to anyone to see. So if anyone's interested in having a look, Fantastic. you can just type in Brightstorm and my name and I'm sure you can, you can see the pictures that I use. So if I'm writing a scene and uh, there's a picture that evokes it for me, then I'll, I will often have that in front of me when I'm writing and I'll look at maybe the shapes of things and, and use it to help me immerse myself and describe what it might be like. So with that, the house the house transforming into a skyship for me I imagine as a writer I I put myself there so I'm with Arthur and Maudie I'm there seeing it unfold and the things that I'm thinking that I would notice if I was actually Arthur there I'm describing those little things the details that will bring it to life in your imagination so yeah focus on the details I use images a lot music as well I use an awful lot so soundtracks are fantastic 
um, to, to movies because they do they take you on that emotional journey so for the house transformation scene I would listen to something uh, sort of a moment from a movie that's the call to adventure moment that moment of going from the home to the, the, the next world another world and that the, the house transformation is that moment of leaving the old behind and moving on to the adventure so you know something like the Narnia Voyage of the Dawn Treader soundtrack is great for that because there's some lovely moments of of adventure in the music so listening to that it takes me to that place and it all helps with my description and to get me into the right the right atmospheric (laughs) zone fascinating because it is very filmic um lots of other things to do with world building really obviously you have a delight in naming your characters you must so let's take Herbertage Rigglesworth yeah. first of all. Yeah. Um, when you come up with a name, what's that conjuring up for you? It has to, for me, um, it has to just sit sit well with the character's feel and personality a little bit. I try not to be too obvious. I'm not a big fan of having names that are too sort of silly or obvious in that way. But I like them to say something or to feel right. So Hermitage Rigglesworth... To me, it suits his personality. You know, he he writes these explorer books about the family, and he's he's an older character. Hermitage to me sounds a bit older. Rigglesworth. It sounds friendly. You know, he's not going to be too much. He's not. It doesn't sound like a bad character. He sounds kind of quite serious, quite respected, quite you know, like it, there's history there, and somehow that comes through through the name. I think um, this is something that Dickens did quite a lot. You know, like using double double letters in names, it gives it a softness often. Mm. So same with Felicity Wiggerty. You know, she's a dependable character, someone that you know will always be there with a cup of tea and a hug should you need need it. And her her name again, it's got that flow. So Felicity Wiggerty, it's got a rhythm. Hermitage Rigglesworth, it has a rhythm mm. and a softness and a, a vibe about it. And sometimes that comes really easily. Like, Hermitage Rigglesworth just came into my head instantly. So did Felicity Wiggerty, actually. They just flew in, and I thought, perfect. They they suit the characters. Some names I have to work a bit harder for. So Brightstorm is Arthur and Maudie's second name, their surname. Took me a while to get that, because I wanted something that was right for them. And the story is about clearing their family name. So it's a very important word and I knew that, so I was thinking, okay, so their personalities as a family, they're very positive, um, but they're also very strong and tenacious. So I thought, what if I mix two words? What if I have a positive word and a strong word? So bright, yeah, that, that kind of fits the, the bill for, for a positive word. Storm, that's, yeah, that's strong. Together, it just said something about about them and about the story because the story is all about ups and downs and sometimes things don't go your way and that's part of life and part of life is working out how to get through those times mm. so it fitted well Eudora Vane the, the, I love the, a um, name that begins with an EU yes I do Ooh. so Eudora she's what I call I call her a sugar coated baddie so I love the idea of things being complicated not necessarily what you see on the outside isn't what you see on the inside with people so Eudora is is she she embodies this so she's beautiful um seemingly perfect but on the inside you know there's a bit of a black 
heart and there's stuff going on that's that's not so nice so Eudora to me sounds a little bit like adorable it sounds mm. lovely so that's like the wolf wolf in sheep's clothing and vain even though it's not spelt like vain when you look in the mirror it's spelt like the weather vane mm. v-a-n-e that alludes to maybe what's really going on so v's are quite sharp and nice to use as it for for things that maybe are, and it's got that vein is quite short snappy so it works for her it's mm. a bit of a, a it's got a double it's double-edged sword i suppose mm. for her so there's meaning and there's the auditory element mm. to it as well and it's interesting how some names like Culpepper and Smethic, even though there must be people who have those names today, mm. they can't have disappeared. Yeah. And yet they instantly feel like they belong to a different age. They do, don't they? Yeah, with Culpepper. And um, I wanted something that fitted with the Explorer vibe as well. And I was thinking spices and discovery and that could work. And to me, Harriet Culp... I mean, Harriet is a very good, dependable name, isn't it? Mm. So Harriet Culpepper sounded like... It sounded adventurous and, and Explorer-like. And someone that means business, that you could rely on. Whereas mm. Smithwick sounds a bit slimy, yeah. <laughs> which he is. I mean, some of the more difficult things in naming, I think, are the ordinary names, not the mm. not the kind of elaborate, but when you come up with a hero and a heroine and you give them the names Arthur and Maudie, you, you're choosing something quite simple mm. and yet it still has to be right, doesn't it? It does, it really does. Um, I, Arthur and Maudie, to me, feel quite traditional which is and timeless which is nice and they are you know at their essence they're ordinary children that do something extraordinary and I, I love that as an idea anyway I love the idea of you know we all feel ordinary <laughs> at times yet I believe that everyone's got the capacity to do something extraordinary whatever your extraordinary is it might be a small extraordinary you know it might be Climbing Everest or, or something big extraordinary or writing a book uh, or playing for your local football team or whatever it is. I like that ordinary achieving extraordinary. So for me, their names kind of say ordinary, but extraordinary as well. Yeah, fantastic. Um, when you are building your world, do you do something? Uh, I'm going to talk about Philip Pullman here mm-hmm. in as much as uh, I remember when we first read Northern Lights, his dark materials, in his world building, how he had this way of taking something that was quite familiar mm-hmm. and yet making it seem strange, or even things that really existed, like in the first chapter where they're drinking Tokai, mm. and you think that's kind of fantasy, but it's a real thing. And that happens in your books as well. You take some things that actually are real, but they seem like fantasy. Mm. Uh, and then you have other things that you feed in, like chimes and uniscope and binoscope mm. that you kind of know what they are, yeah. but you've made them unfamiliar again. Mm. I think it's so. A, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that's a re- it's a good, um, a great tool for fantasy writing to take something that you know the reader is going to pick up on the signals of what's within the word. So Uniscope 
Um, as an example, we know the words telescope, we know uni on its own, we know what that, that means. So putting them together, it's not too tricky to work out for the reader without me having to describe it mm-hmm. as an authorial voice. You know that that's probably a telescope that's, that they're describing, or a binoscope. You, we know binoculars, binoscope, you can, um, you can piece that together. Oh, that's like our binoculars binoculars but it's a slightly different word so I find it a good way to to signal to the reader you're not on planet earth here Mm. you're somewhere that is like it but not Um, it's a a different an alternative version Mm. maybe technology's gone in a different way or things things just developed a little bit Mm. differently I love the chimes in particular Um, I suppose one of the things that you have to be careful of is not making it too heavy mm. by doing too much of that yes. it's, it's just dropped in in a few places mm. isn't it this yes yeah it could weigh idea. it down I think if you do it too much it, it becomes it's just jargon and it has no meaning so you have to choose carefully what you'd like to maybe twist a little bit and change a little bit and have a reason for why you're doing it so it, it feels like it's a natural part of the story rather than being didactic. None of us want to hear the authors when we're reading. We don't want to be aware that the author has been there writing the words. Absolutely. Um, mm. I'm always attracted to food in stories. Oh, me too. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you what marsh cake tastes like. Do you know, I had one today, weirdly, <laughs> because I went on a school visit and a teacher had made marsh cakes really? for, for, to bring in for the children to have. So um, in the world of Brightstorm, Felicity Wiggity is the ship's cook and she likes to experiment and come up with different things and she's a great cook. So she'll take ingredients from wherever they're exploring. So she uses a pinch of bog herb. So whatever bog herb might be, maybe it's nettles or, or something like that. I think food, food is, is very important because we're daily, we, it's all part of our lives, so it needs to be, for children especially, what they're going to eat next is very yes, important. Yeah. And of course, marsh cakes is one of those where they can invent, and then we have mm. march paint. Now that's actually yes, a real thing, though, Yes, isn't it? yeah. I seem to remember that from when mm. I taught the Tudors back in the day. Yeah, I did, I did a little bit. I like to take things from real life and feed it in because because it, it it evokes a bit of an era as well and because the world of Brightstorm feels old fashioned and modern, inventive at the same time, those details are quite important to evoking the reader that here's a hint at something that maybe sounds a bit old fashioned mm. but yeah, just as a reminder. Well we've certainly given people a hint of the world that you write about. Mm. And as you said at the beginning, this particular story, Dark Whispers, uh, is about the search for Hermitage, Rigglesworth. Mm. Uh, but the, the book itself is called Dark Whispers. Yes. Now, what are the Dark Whispers? Oh, say so the Dark Whispers. Now, in the world of Brightstorm, you have creatures that are sapient creatures. And this all stems from me. I'm very fascinated by humans' relationship with the natural world and how we treat animals and how we tend to put ourselves on the top of the pyramid of of the of everything. <laughs> and I yeah, I like playing with that and fantasy is a great place to do it because you can make up your own rules about animals. And I I just thought, do you know what? What if some animals um somehow genetically 
were as intelligent as humans, they can understand humans. And then from that, I thought, well, some of these, what if there were, I suppose, like super sapiens? So sapient animals that are, you know, maybe in a, in a group that function in a slightly different way. So out of that was born the thought wolves that you get in Brightstorm. So these incredibly, these large creatures that communicate through thought. So when I was writing Dark Whispers, I had this idea, I wanted to take them into the sort of rainforest jungle and I was imagining what creatures could exist, what's, what new sapiens could be discovered and I was thinking what if actually these sapiens you know maybe they're not they're not all good maybe there's there's something dark and dangerous about how they get their energy without giving too many spoilers maybe there's there's something in how they survive that's nuanced that maybe seems bad but is it so these the dark whispers are super sapient creatures that live in the wide that the characters come across and they're quite dangerous and very interesting in how why they don't we have a reading where we yes let's, let's do that a strange whispering sound filled the air a soft hushed murmur what are they i can't see they're everywhere look Did you see the size of their claws? There's the shriek of wind, as though something sliced through it at great speed. Arthur pressed his eye to the gap where he could see a narrow section of the scene above. A dark shape circled them, too fast to see. Heads whipped around in all directions, searching frantically. There's something out there! Then he saw it again. Then another. And another. Some sort of flying creatures circled them, their wings slapping through the air like sodden leather. Oh, there's something for you to uh, get your um, teeth into when you read this story. Yes, so meet the dark whispers and yes, you you shall find out some interesting things. So one of the things that happens in here is that also the discovery of a new place, isn't there, Mm. Um, called... Erethia. 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 Um, And I wondered, in a sort of novel, albeit fantasy, but a novel that's about exploration and discovery, uh, whether in this day and age it's possible to write about that without all the kind of notions of colonialism. Yeah. Because actually we discover that this place has been inhabited. It's a tricky thing to do, and... The way that I approached it, and the thing that was important to me, is that it didn't feel like anything that we really have on Earth in our history. So I wanted to invent something that felt like a different type of society in this world that's developed in this place, that doesn't relate to anything that we have in our real world. Um, And I think it was important for me to make that distinction and make even in the choice of the the language and the naming of it. In fact, I went more towards um, slightly Latin feeling in the roots of it because I wanted to come at it from that angle. And hopefully, hopefully I did, I did a, an okay, <laughs> okay job of that. And to come at that technology in a different way and come up with something fresh and different. So I suppose the, the jungle, the rainforest in Dark Whispers is... 
I, I kind of describe it as rainforest plus plus. So it's yeah. it's rainforest with a big sting in, in its tail, with a diff a slightly different weather system that's extreme and has impacted on how the people that live there have developed their technology and how they live. Um, in contrast with how maybe the people back in Longtown have developed and how they perceive the outside world, how the people that live in this new place um, see outside. It's, a, it's an interesting balance. And I, I tend to throw a lot of questions out mm. there for, you know, I don't necessarily have the answers, but I th- I'll throw the questions for the readers to consider and think yeah. about. Sometimes it's a single sentence. Mm. So in this instance, it's something about, and people did live there, you know, it wasn't mm. uninhabited. And yes. in that one sentence, it says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, because uh, it's, you know, how the, the people are that are exploring there are coming to it and and their expectations mm. and then how that's upturned a little bit and mm. um you know obviously how an explorer like Yodora Vane is going to approach this place is very different to how someone like Harriet Culpepper will approach this place so there's there's a you know, it's important for me to show that there's good and bad within in all sides of how people are doing mm. doing things and how they're treating exploration and some of it will echo our history of exploration because you're going to have uh, you're going to be coming across um, different societies as as you like spread your wings and explore and it's how how we treat those those new experiences and and how we we um, you know live together and are respectful of what we encounter, as well as discovering and and learning from each other. You were a teacher. I was. Primary teacher. I was. And um, I, I thought it was quite interesting in reading, for example, Welby's instructions to Arthur mm. about how to be a good learner. Um, and also uh, later on where it says the course you take in life, your achievements are what makes you not some piece of paper. Is this your philosophy of education coming through here? Yeah, do you know, different things work for different people, I think. And having three children of my own, I see see that so clearly. My children are very, very different. One, you know, school really, you know, worked for her. My other daughter dyslexic auditory processing delay for her secondary school was an absolute disaster it just the way the setup didn't work for her and she went through a lot of her time at school feeling like she was lesser that she wasn't clever and for me it's important to acknowledge that learners are different and so with Arthur and Maudie like Maudie is is very inventive um academic got a great engineering brain Arthur's route maybe doesn't lie in that direction but it doesn't mean that it's any less uh, valid mm. for him so that's my little nod to kind of saying do you know what there isn't necessarily a hierarchy of achievement that makes puts one above the other it's there's space for a big spectrum so obviously we don't want to give any plot spoilers here but I wonder when you're um, working on a book like Dark Whispers how do you go about the plotting process? Mm. Is it an idea or a story that comes to you first? Is it a visual image and then you mm. work from that? 
In other words, how does it all work for you? I I have a combination of it. If I'm planning out a story, I often have an idea of where it's heading. So I will often know the exit feeling, I suppose, or, or the, you know, what I'm trying to say in a simple way. What I do actually... Uh, one of the first things I do, and this could be quite fun to try with children, is I imagine it's a finished book and I write the blurb for it. And that helps me get to the heart of what I'm trying to say, the core of what's important in the story and what's maybe unique about what I'm doing. And if I can't get it right, then I know that something's probably missing and that if I start writing, I'll probably go down lots of false alleys. And because I'm busy, the more I can sort of refine it early on, the better for me, really, time-wise. So I start sort of back to front in a way. I write the blurb, then I'll do maybe a synopsis and build up from there, then do a chapter outline. Often I'll have scenes in my head that I know have to happen that will be very strong, like things with the the dark whispers, scenes with them, that uh, things that interactions with the characters that I knew had to be there, things at the end <laughs> that happen, and little plot points on the way when... You know, Arthur and Mordy get split up and go their separate ways. So I knew there was this point of um, them maybe having issue, an issue with each other, a disagreement that would then, when they're split apart, it makes it more meaningful. So then when I'm writing it, I know that I've got to feed these little things in that will build their relationship. So when you hit that point, it's going to have impact. Mm-hmm. So... Um, often when I'm writing, I don't necessarily write front to back either. I might write a scene in the middle, uh, leave out some other bits and then work out the best way to get there because you know the threads that you need to to put in. So in school, I was saying often with children, we, we will write front to back, we, you know, write a story beginning to, to, to end. Actually, maybe try writing a scene that's in the middle, that's an exciting scene, then look, about, look at how you might want to get there or write the ending and then think about how does that affect what you would need to do in the beginning in order to reach this place? What do you need to feed in mm. to it? I'm always fascinated by the bits that people have to take out mm. at the editing process. Mm. Is there much of that that has to go on? For me with mine, because I do quite a good intensive plotting with my editor there doesn't tend I tend to put more in than take it out we'll have meetings early on we sit around a table and I I give them my my synopsis and then we'll we'll look at it and and have a nice brainstorm of oh maybe this or we could do that or how about if we go in that direction and I scribble and then I go away and rework on it until we refine it to a place where I'm thinking yeah we're good to good to write now that's a, a nice model that you've described of working that could translate into the classroom very well as well, mm, couldn't it? It could, definitely. I do yeah. bouncing ideas, going mm. away and writing, coming back. Yeah, and... we think of writing as being quite a solitary thing, but actually, it's for me, it's incredibly collaborative with my agent, with my editor. It's a team effort. You know, you can't know everything yourself as a writer. You you need these. To, you can't see everything when you're on the inside. Sometimes it takes an objective eye to point that out and I think it's important for children to know that. So um, as well as being an art, writing is actually a profession, it's Mm. a job and you know you have to, you learn your craft and you Mm. get better 
through doing it. Yeah. Um, I wonder what you like most about this job of yours, this job of writing. Oh, I, do you know, I love so much about it. I love the creative side of it. I love creation. I love imagining what could be and asking these questions. But I also, I love meeting children. I love school visits. I love getting in, working with children, chatting to them about their ideas. And also, I think going and meeting children that have read the books, there's nothing, to me, there's nothing like seeing that spark in the eye when they've been switched on by something. And they look at you with that eagerness and that that sort of energy of loving something and going on that journey. And it's priceless to see Mm. that. It's really beautiful and, and important to make those connections. Now, I've got one thing that I'd like to end with, and I understand Ooh. that when uh, when you were just launching out on your writing mm. career, that a fortune cookie had something to do yes. with this. Tell us that story. So, it was around Chinese New Year time. So, I'd been um, agented for a little while, and it was the second book that I was working on with my agent. The first book, which, interestingly, is being kind of regenerated now for my next story. <laughs> so what goes around comes around. But uh, the first book, we'd, we'd sort of... It was quite high fantasy, quite ambitious for a first novel. So my agent had said after we'd sum- submitted it to several publishers that got very close, she said, mm, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm feeling like maybe this isn't your first book. Maybe should work on something new and I I trust her advice and I'm in it for the long haul so for me I thought yeah do you know what that sounds sensible um had other ideas so I started working on Brightstorm finished it it was going out on submission and it was Chinese New Year time and had a fortune cookie opened it and inside it said the tide of change approaches and I thought oh this is oh I like this I'm going to keep that put it in a little pot on my writing desk and then the next week I had the call about Brightstorm saying that Scholastic wanted to publish it and they loved it and so I was like yes that is lucky <laughs> then um so yeah amazing that's... so it just so happens that if in this room where we are Ooh. and we're making this podcast I've discovered this golden fortune cookie and I'm interested to know what it says it has in store oh what could it be what's the future going to hold the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams (gasps) isn't that poignant isn't that so true though that you know it is it's so much about belief with your dreams and One thing I thought is, when I decided to give my writing a good old crack, I thought, do you know what? I thought of myself at the end of my life, and I thought, what would would I regret? And I thought, I'll regret not trying. I don't mind failing as long as I've given it everything I've got um, in order to follow my dreams fearlessly and just go in. You have to take take yourself to that place of difficulty in order to grow don't you so for me following your dreams and actually giving it a good go is the most important thing that's yeah that's lovely follow your dreams everyone <laughs> well Vashti it's been such a pleasure speaking oh, to you this thank afternoon thank you for having me Nikki thank it's you been for joining lovely. us thank you thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine if you have enjoyed this podcast you can find many more on the podcast section of our website justimagine.co.uk plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod 
and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.